The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You know, different rulers in history have had different different nicknames or uh, titles that are added to them. So, for example, like one of the most famous, like Bloody Mary. That's not a great one, um, but that's a famous one. Some are good, some are not so good, like that one. Some of the uh, some of the lesser known bad ones, I think, are kind of interesting. Uh, one guy, a king of France, he's known as Charles the Bald. Of all things, from his entire life, his entire reign, he's gotta be like, are you serious? Like, that's the one thing you remember about me? That's a bummer. And actually, historians um, argue, some think he actually wasn't even bald. So he got that kind of uh, that bad rap. Here's another one, Avilo the Cabbage. I have no idea where that comes from. He was the czar of Bulgaria. He's known as the cabbage. I don't know what that means. One of my favorites, favorites is Archibald the loser. You know, there's those times like you're like, man, I just feel like such a loser right now, okay? Or like, man, I'm the worst, the biggest loser. Apparently not. Like there's one that history's like, no, this guy is the loser. On your worst day, just remember Archibald, he is the loser, apparently, okay, historically. Um, but there's a cut two in particular I want to dial in on. Um, they, they're more well-known, and I just want to talk about these two particular rulers. One is uh, one of the most famous. It's Alexander, and he's given the title The Great. Alexander The Great. The Great. That's a pretty good title. And there's a lot of reasons why he's, re- he's called The Great. He did some really impressive things. So for starters, he uh, was trained as a child by Aristotle. Personally, it's not a bad deal. He was known as one of the most brilliant military commanders in all of history. Apparently, he never lost a battle, ever, never lost. He expanded uh, Greek culture throughout the world, Hellenized, remembered to Hellenize the world. He expanded out. And if you think of it like this, he basically conquered the known world all by the time he was in his early 30s. It's impressive. He's, for good reason, he's called the Great. Now, let's uh, juxtapose that with another one. Over here, we've got Alexander the Great. There's another famous leader. He's known as Ivan the Terrible. That's, I mean, like two ends of the spectrum, right? We've got the great, you know, and then the terrible, all right? And who is Ivan the Terrible? He was the prince of Moscow. He also expanded his empire. He also uh, uh, conquered and expanded his empire, but he had one very notable loss where he lost to uh, an army that comprised of Sweden and Poland. And after that, he basically retreated back into safety and isolation, went into uh, power preservation mode. He got very suspicious and paranoid of, of the people in his council, the other nobles, and according to history, had thousands of them executed because of his paranoia. Went so far to the point where he actually had his own son, who was the, the visible heir, he had his own son executed. And so because of his reign of terror, he's known as Ivan the Terrible. Now what's interesting is many historians point out that Alexander the Great is not that much different than Ivan the Terrible. In fact, he's remembered to have 
a reign of terror himself. There was one of his, one of his leaders, a man named Cassander, long after Alexander had died, he passed by a statue of Alexander the Great at Delphi. And he said he could never walk by that statue without shuddering because there is so much fear surrounding Alexander the Great. Here are some of the words historians have used to describe Alexander the Great. In addition to being a raging alcoholic, he was ruthless, impulsive, paranoid, narcissistic, and cruel. He had no problems executing people that he was paranoid of, including, and this is a, a story that's often brought up as an example of his level of narcissism. In one battle, there was a man that had saved his life. He was about to be killed, and another man saved his life. And because that made him look bad, later at a banquet, he killed the man. So what's interesting is that one is remembered as Alexander the Great, the other is remembered as Ivan the Terrible. I mean, those are far poles, but in reality, they weren't that much different aside from maybe the size of their kingdoms and the fact that one lost a battle and one didn't. It makes me think, I wonder if we as a culture, maybe just as humanity, because this is not just our culture that uses those titles, maybe just us as a humanity struggle to define the concept of greatness. What does it mean? These two men, very similar, one's terrible, one's great. What does greatness actually mean? And I think it's, an, it's a timely moment for us to consider such a profound question because, or profound concepts such as greatness, it's a timely time because we're entering into a new year. We have things before us that we're like, you know what would make this, this next year great? I mean, think about it. Maybe you've already thought about it. Maybe you've written it down. This is what would be great. If my career did this, this next year will be great. If I, you know, expanded the territory of, of my career, expanded uh, my salary, if I expanded my influence, if our company expanded, that would make this great. You know what would be great? So what do I need to do to get that with my career? Well, I need this person to do this. I need this, this. I need this to happen. I need this to happen. I need to do this. Like we have greatness for our career. We have greatness financially. We have greatness for our homes, greatness for our kids, greatness for our marriage. We look at the year stretch before us like, you know what would be great? And before we run off and pursue that very diligently, Let's just stop and define what is greatness. Now, I want to take a look at a, a passage. It's some of the most profound words Jesus spoke. And uh, for some, this may be the first time you've heard this. And uh, uh, this is a passage that is worth really reflecting. For others, maybe you've heard this passage many times. And if you have, then you know this is one of those passages that we have to keep coming back to, to, ref to reflect and redefine our lives. I want you to open with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are going to start at verse 32. Mark is in the New Testament. It's, uh, Mark was uh, a follower of Jesus and is writing a biography of his life and especially his ministry and the things he taught. And we're, we're picking it up in Mark 10, starting in verse 32. Here's what it says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now look at this. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, see, that's the Greek word there's behold. Look, check this out. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. All right, now pause with me there. There, Let's get the context here. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. And it says there was a group of his followers. There were the 12 and then his larger disciples, uh, other disciples, other followers, and other crowds. And he says, Jesus is walking on ahead. And it says there's a mixture of emotions among those who are following after him on their way to Jerusalem. Their emotions are amazement and fear. They are amazed, they're awestruck, they're stunned, they're watching this guy, they can't believe it, and they're afraid. Now, what's going on here? Why does this bring about fear and amazement? Like, what is happening in in Jesus' march to Jerusalem that's causing that? Well, we know from already what's happened in Mark, but also some of the parallel accounts of this time period in Jesus' ministry, we know exactly why they're afraid. It has already well been established among his disciples that the, the religious elite of the day, we're talking the, the scribes, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin are actively plotting to find a way to kill him. In fact, in John's gospel about this time, Jesus says, hey, it's time to go down to, down to Judea and then where, where Jerusalem is to go up to Jerusalem. And Thomas, the twin says, okay, I guess we'll all follow Jesus and die too. They're very clear how dangerous this is. I want you to think about it. Jesus at this point, this is, there is a lot of tension around Jesus and the religious powers that be. He's on his way marching up to Jerusalem and despite the danger, the people who are with him are like, they're afraid. They're like, what is about to happen to Jesus and what might happen to us because we're walking with him? They're afraid and for good reason. The disciples are watching Jesus And they are just, they're awestruck. Don't miss this part. This is, I mean, to get yourself into the scene. Jesus is marching up to Jerusalem. His gaze is fixed. His jaws clenched. He's walking with just sheer bravery, courage. He knows exactly what's about to happen. And he doesn't care. I mean, the expression of just uh, courage and testosterone to just walk up. I mean, the disciples are like, dang. And and he pulls them aside. He says, let me tell you what's about to happen. And I want you to notice the detail. This is, by the way, just in the book of Mark, this is the third time he's talked about his death. But listen to the amount of detail he gives them this time. He says, he knows who. He says, here's what's, I'll tell you what's going to happen. He's like, look, behold, I want you to know, this is what's about to happen. The chief priests and scribes, they're going to arrest me, try me and condemn me to death, then hand me over to the Gentiles. He's already showing he knows exactly how he is going to die. In the chapter before in Mark, he's already given the speech of take up your cross and follow me. He knows it's going to be crucifixion. The Jews cannot crucify 
a person. Only the Gentiles do. Why then would the Jewish, uh, Jewish leaders condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles? They have a mode of execution. They will stone people to death. They'll hurl these stones and rocks and, uh, and, and cause people to die. They do that with Stephen in the beginning of Acts. Like, they have a way to kill him. Why are they going to turn him over to the Gentiles? Because Jesus knows exactly how he's going to die. He's going to be hanged on a cross. Why would they do that? To humiliate him, to torture him, and they'll do that because of the Old Testament law that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They want to curse him. They want to do away with him and his memory in the most brutal, humiliating way possible. They want to stamp him out, and Jesus knows exactly what's coming. He says, he knows who? These people will arrest me. They'll condemn me to die. Then they'll turn me over to the Gentiles. And then he says, with detail, here's exactly what the Gentiles will do. They will beat me and mock me and spit on me. They'll flog me then they will kill me. He knows exactly. He's, it's not fuzzy to him. He's not like, hey, I, I know something bad's going to happen, but I just don't know what it is. I know I have to die, but I don't exactly know how. It might sneak up on me. He knows in detail exactly what's happening, and they are just awestruck that he's marching right into it because that's what he came to do. Now, how could he do that with such courage? Because there's one more detail he gave them. On the third day, I will rise again. He knew exactly what was happening. It's kind of hard to empathize with the disciples for being so caught off guard. Seeing as how this is the third time he's talked to them and told them exactly what's going to happen. And at the first part of it, the chief priests arrest him. They send their guard in the garden. They didn't just hang out a little longer. The first part of that, they'll arrest me. They all scatter. And then they're moping around on the third day. Like they just, they, it's hard to sympathize. It's like, knew exactly what was going to happen. He said it. And he said it on the way up to Jerusalem. This is the time to Jerusalem. Like this is like a few days before the triumphal entry. Like this might be Thursday or Friday before Palm Sunday. I mean, it's like he's saying this maybe on Friday or Thursday. And he's like, this time next week, this will happen. This will happen in a matter of days. It's not like months before and like, oh yeah, didn't he say something about it? He's like, hey, just so you know, this is what's going to happen this week. He knew exactly what was going to happen and he was a sight to behold walking up to Jerusalem that day. Let's pick it up in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your, what's the word there? In your glory. All right, pause with me there. That uh, opening line, that first question, uh, Jesus, uh, do whatever we ask you. Only children ask that question, right? You ever have your kids uh, approach you, you know, you're doing the dishes and your kids say, hey, dad, I'm going to ask you something, but whatever I say, you have to say yes. And you're like, no parent in history has ever followed for that, you know? That means I'm almost certainly going to say no. Like, I don't even know what it is, but I'm already gearing up a no, okay? That's not a good preface to whatever your question is. And Jesus does, like any other parent, he says, what's the question? He doesn't say, Sure. He says, what's the question? It's showing off. Mark is showing off their childishness. 
In fact, this is actually probably speaking to their literal age. They are almost certainly teenagers, probably young teenagers. You may see like paintings from, you know, the Renaissance where they all have these long beards, some are bald and they have white hair. They're teenagers, they're young. So they're literally probably showing off their childishness. In fact, Matthew's account of this gives a little more detail that I think Mark kind of left out, kept the point, but maybe was trying to just be modest for James and John. Matthew preserves the detail that it technically wasn't them who said the words. They got their mom to do it. That's pretty embarrassing. It says, mom, go ask, it's time, go ask Jesus now. And then she says, okay. Can you make them sit on your right and your left hand? And then he turns to James and John because they're the ones asking the question. Like this shows their childishness. Only a child asks a question like that. You're gonna do anything I ask, right? Interesting side note, it's instructive to how we present our requests to the Lord. Interesting. Jesus responds with, okay, just tell me your question. And then they say, can we sit at your right hand and on your left hand in your glory? What do they want? They're saying, Jesus, one day when you're glorified, which we believe in faith you will be, you'll be glorified. We want to be your, your right-hand man and your left-hand man. We would like to be on your right and on your left. We want to be in there sharing in your glory. What are they after? They're after glory. They, we we want to be like, we don't want to be with these other guys. We want to be like your right-hand guys, okay? We want to be your right and your left hand. We'll let you even pick. It could be James on the right or John on the right. We'll let you decide, but we want to be there with you getting some of that glory glory. They're after glory. And the really tough part of reading this request is it comes immediately after what Jesus just told them. Timing is pretty bad, James and John. He just talked about what he's going to suffer. And they're like, yeah, 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 I got that with the flogging. Understood. Could we sit on your right hand and your left hand? I got it. No, we, we understand. We know it's going to be tough. Well, I, whatever, can we just have glory? In fact, they're so in pursuit of glory, they're going to miss it. What does Jesus say? I mean, it's, it's bad timing. What does Jesus say? Let's pick it up in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am, I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus says, you, you, don't, you want some of that glory, but you really don't know what you're asking. Because if you're following after me, do, do you think you're ready to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they say, absolutely. What is he saying? He uses these two images, cup and baptism, and they're images that come out of the Old Testament. The cup is often a illustration, especially in the prophets, for wrath. 
So God will be speaking to the wicked, those who uh, oppress others, and he'll say, I have poured out a cup of wrath for you. And the, it's, it's, the, here's the imagery. He's filling up a cup, sliding it across the table, and the wicked it, it has to drink it down. It's a symbol of wrath. They have to drink it down to the dregs. It is, they have to drink down the wrath God has prepared for them. It's sometimes known as a cup of staggering. It's kind of a terrifying phrase. And Jesus says, I am about to drink the cup. He also talks about baptism, and it's similarly in the Old Testament, water is used in a couple different ways. One of the ways the water, especially the deeps, are used symbolically is as chaos. We think of like the ocean as a place to explore, as scientific curiosities. We think of underwater reefs and sharks and beautiful fish and all kinds of things to explore. That's not how the ancients saw it. The ancients saw the, the deeps as chaos, as terrifying, as darkness, as something to be saved from. That's why in Genesis 1, they have to call land. God calls land up out of the water. That's why the, the water covers back over the earth at the time of the flood. And in the New Testament, baptism is linked with the flood. Why? Because Jesus is, uh, Jesus is going down into the chaos of death and sin, and he rises back up. Baptism are there two images for wrath. And Jesus says, I have come to drink down the cup of wrath. I've come to enter in to the baptism of wrath that God has called me to. Now, what's profound about that is those actually represent the two rituals that God left for his church always to do. There are two things, sometimes called ordinances, sometimes called sac sacraments, where one is a meal where there's bread and there's a cup. And in fact, about a week later, after he says this, he has a new covenant and he serves the last supper and there's a cup, that, there's bread he passes around and cup that he passes around and he says, my body will be broken. He says, my blood will be, will be poured out for you and to drink this cup, the sweetness of the fruit of the vine. Why? Because Jesus is going to step into the wrath we deserve. And if we're in Jesus, Jesus takes the cup of wrath for us and we just get the sweet cup of his saving work. Do you follow me? The other uh, symbol is of baptism. What is baptism? It's where someone gets lowered under the water and comes back up. It is chiefly not a symbol of being cleansed. It's not, the, it's not chiefly being washed clean. It's chiefly a symbol of burial. That's what the Bible says. Someone goes under the water like a symbolic burial and rises up why? Because the true death that we deserve, the ultimate death away from God for eternity because of our sin, Jesus took by going down into the chaos waters of death, but he rose back up. So Jesus commanded every one of his followers, we do a symbolic burial under the water and come back out as something brand new. Follow me? These two great symbols, Jesus says, I am about to walk in and take the suffering and wrath for humanity, that's what I came to do. Are you going to follow me in that path? Now, side note, um, we are actually, we uh, take communion every few weeks, took communion just a couple weeks ago, and in a couple weeks, we, are, we have a baptism coming up. And I want to just take this opportunity. If you've never been baptized, and you, maybe you just started following Jesus, or, uh, or maybe you were baptized as a baby, and if you're baptized as a baby, that is a beautiful step that your parents took about how they're going to raise you and, and what they believe in God for for your life. Well, we would encourage you to do, if you've never been baptized as an adult, to take that step as an adult. Now that you've put your faith in Jesus, 
Take that step, be baptized as the symbol that Jesus was buried in the grave, taking all your sin with, you, with him and raised you back up. And since you've put your faith in Jesus, you are walking a brand new life born again. If you've never been baptized in three weeks, we are going to be doing a baptism. I want to encourage you to be baptized. At the end of our service, you'll have an opportunity to sign up to be baptized. I want to encourage you to do that. Jesus gives these two symbols of wrath. He says, are you guys, this is my path. If you want the glory that I'm getting, are you able to follow my path? Are you able to drink the cup and take the baptism? And they say so childishly, of course we are. Now, do they? No, they run away immediately. The first sign of danger, they run away. They're not ready. But Jesus says, but you will one day. And they do one day. They do take that step, take up their own cross and follow Jesus in his suffering and his sacrifice for the sake of others. Now notice where this passage turns. We're going, to read this, we're going to wrap up this passage, but I want you to see where it turns. He addresses then glory. He says, you will take the cup and the baptism. He says, but glory is not mine to dispense. I don't hand that out. Only the Father does. And then it takes a turn. It says, and the other, predictably, the other ten were indignant. Of course they were. The other 10 were furious. And there's like a hinge here because I want you to see how Jesus then addresses these, these relationships and how this overall issue affects relationships. Let's wrap up this text. Let's pick it up in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus exposes, listen, what you guys are, are fighting about right now is this fight for glory. That's the way the whole rest of the world operates. But it's not the way that my followers are going to operate. He says the whole world is in pursuit of glory. And how do they pursue glory? What comes with glory is the, they have to get glory by climbing over others. They have to get glory by controlling others, dominating others, oppressing others, suppressing others. They've got to push others down. Others are their competition. Um, there's, a, there's a scarcity of glory, so they've got to push others down, climb over others to get it. That is the way the entire world operates, the pursuit of glory. He says, but that's not how it's going to be with you. He says, while the world pursues glory, I'm calling you to pursue something different. I'm calling you to pursue greatness. Let the world pursue glory, you pursue greatness. And he said, this is what greatness is. It's not pushing down others, it's coming to serve others. It's not, how can I use others to get more glory? It's, how can I serve other people? Now, why would that be his, why would that be 
uh, what he's calling them to do. He says, because that's what I'm doing. I came to serve, be a ransom. I came to give my life away. He says, look at me. My eyes are fixed to Jerusalem. I'm walking up to Jerusalem with courage, with bravery. With, 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 there's, there's no hesitation in my step. I'm walking to Jerusalem. Why? Because I came to serve. And he says, if you're part of my kingdom, that's what you're here for. That's what greatness is in my kingdom. That's what he says. Well, what do we know about Jesus? What does the scripture say about Jesus? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to, to be something to be grasped. So he humbled himself, being in the form of a human. He humbled himself to being a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that God then highly exalts him. It's the Father. He wasn't pursuing glory. He was pursuing being a servant. But then it's the Father that highly exalts him and gives him a name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who your Savior is. Do you believe that, church? That's who your Savior is. He said a, he said a different context. He said a different culture for his kingdom. And he says, if you're a citizen of my kingdom, you do something completely opposite. The world's kingdoms from the beginning of time are pushing and down and controlling and oppressing others to get glory. He says, in my kingdom, you are not pursuing glory. You're pursuing greatness, which is serving others. Why? Because Jesus knew he would come to suffer and he was willing to suffer for the joy set before him. He was willing to suffer because he knew that he would rise. See, if you're part of the kingdom, God's kingdom, if you're part of Jesus's kingdom, you know there's only one that can dispense glory. It's the glorious one. Only the Father can expense real glory. The glory of this world, the, the, the craving and clawing and pursuing the glories of this world, it just slips right through our fingers. It's empty because there's only one that can dispense glory. It's the great glorious king. It's the, it's the God of the universe. And if we're part of the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, glory is then guaranteed. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8. He says, though he predest those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. If you are follower of Jesus, you know glory is guaranteed, dispensed from the only one who can actually dispense real glory, the glorious one, the God of the universe. So we serve with the expectation that we may suffer, we may, so we may sacrifice, but we will rise and there will be glory. This is the culture of his kingdom. So take James. He's in pursuit of glory. But Jesus rises again and his entire life gets transformed and he receives the Holy Spirit and he changes James into something that this world would not even recognize. And about 10 or 11 years after this, that makes, makes him early to mid-20s. James is arrested. He's so influential and, and the, the, the church is growing so rapidly within those first 10 years that King Herod arrests James and has him executed. And as he's walking to his execution, he's so fearless 
that his executioner is awestruck. Does that sound familiar? He's so fearless that according to history, he's so fearlessly walking to his, exe to his, to his execution or facing his execution that his executioner converts to Christianity on the spot, gives his life to Jesus, which infuriates King Herod. And King Herod has both of them executed on the same day by the same sword. And you know what God's people remember James, the son of Zebedee? You know how they remember him? They've given him a title. The church historically have given him a title. James the Great. That's what greatness is. He's calling us, please, please hear this text in respect for this text. This is not just simply saying, you know what? I should try a little harder to serve more. I, I need to do better. Like I just need to be kinder. I need to listen. I need to be nice. I should have a little bit more of a servant heart. That's not what, what this is talking about. This is talking about an utterly opposite spirit that this world will not recognize. It's talking about a, such a change in who you are from the inside out that only the miracle of the spirit of God would do this. That we're prying off our hands. We're prying our hands off this perpetual pursuit of glory which can only come by pushing others down. That's the only thing the world knows. We just live with it and expect it. I know my coworker's gonna do that. I know my friend's gonna do that. Hey, we've all gotta get after our own. I know everyone's gonna do that. We're just, we just accept it as normal and that's the only way to pursue glory is by pushing everyone down. That there's a miracle that he wants to do in our souls where we're no longer controlling people to get glory. We're serving people because Jesus said that was greatness and we know that the promise of glory will come from the Father at his time and in his way. He's talking about a transformation in your soul. So I want you to think about this upcoming year. What does greatness look like? What does greatness look like in your, in your career? Jesus said, clearly, the night he was about to be executed, he washed all their feet like a lowly servant. It's a few days after this. He said, this is what I'm commanding you to do. This is not an option. This is not something to just dial up a little bit. This is a, a, a miraculous transformation. It is not being conformed to the patterns of this world and being transformed to something completely different in the image of Jesus. What would it look like? What would it look like? Because here's how the world handles coworkers. The world handles coworkers and sees them as competition. It handles those who, uh, who I report to as, man, as someone I want to take their job away if I had the opportunity. The people that report to me, they're, they're uh, people that I use to keep myself like in the, in, in the position that I want. And look, if I need to steal an idea or take credit for something, I'm going to do it because they're there to help me pursue glory. And if any of them are at all threatening, I might murder their career. That's the world's way of handling greatness. How does the world handle friendship? Well, look, I, I'll be your friend as long as you have something for me. But like, if you're going through a long, hard season that is just, it, 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 I'm not getting anything out of it, like, I just can't do this anymore. Like, or, or, you know, I'll be there for you if it works around everything else. But I'm not gonna be committed to you. Like, I know you've got that thing and it's important to you, and I'm, but I can't really commit to it. I'll wait and see if I've got nothing else going on and then I'll go to it. Like, friends are not something, I'm not here to serve you. You meet a purpose in my life and the moment you stop meeting that purpose, I don't have time for you. 
This is how the world handles parenting. These are my children, and like I need my children to perform well. I need my children to do well. I need my children to act a certain way, because otherwise it's embarrassing to me. It looks bad on me, but I would love to be able to tell my friends and show pictures of all their accolades and all their successes, because that makes me look good. It makes me feel gratified. It makes me feel better about my identity. Here's how the world handles marriage. It's like, you know, I, I had this list of expectations. I married you because, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I saw it on a sitcom. I married you because I thought that would make me happy. And so, like, I, why did I get married? Because I have these lists of things that I'm expecting you to make me happy till death do us part. But if you're no longer meeting those needs for me, then I don't know. I'm not really getting anything out of this. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe I don't, maybe I fell out of love. And you know what that's code for? That's code for you are no longer meeting my needs, so I'm out. That is pushing others down because I am after glory for myself. And Jesus says, that is not how my kingdom operates. I'm releasing you to serve and pursue greatness. Be something that this world doesn't doesn't recognize. Walk into your servanthood with your eyes fixed, your jaw clenched. That will make someone say like, why would they do that? You're living in such a way that doesn't make sense unless your king and savior rose again from the dead, receiving the glory that God promised him. So you walk into your, your place of work and you say, look, I don't need to fight for a promotion. I don't need to fight for what's mine because this whole workspace is controlled by my God. And my God has whatever, he, he has my career in his hands. If he wants me to be promoted, I'll be promoted. If he wants me to be demoted or fired, I'll be demoted or fired. It's all in his hands. So I'm coming to be excellent. I'm coming to work hard. I'm coming to give my all and it's for his glory. So I'm going to be here. I'm going to faithfully, continually serve. How can I help you? How can I help you? How can I seek your needs? I don't need to pursue glory because that's already promised to me. See, here, here's how someone who's a citizen of King Jesus' kingdom handles a friend. It says, God, you have gifted me this person in my life. So I am going to be there for them. I'm not looking, what can I get out of this friendship? I'm going to be present for them. I'm going to be consistent with them. I'm going to, I'm going to make that a priority in my life because I cannot live alone. And I'm called to have these friendships that I'm going to pour myself out for, even if it means long suffering. I'm going to take brave steps and reconcile with, uh, because why? I, I'm in this friendship to serve, not to get. Here's how, here's how the, someone who's living in the kingdom of God handles parenting. I am not here to contort my children into my image. I'm not here to make sure my plan for my kids works out because I want the Holy Spirit to make them in the image of Jesus. And I want God's plan to play out. So I'm here to serve. What are you doing in the life of my children? Here's how someone who's married lives out their marriage if they're in the kingdom of heaven. They live it out saying, I'm not here to get all of my needs met. I am here to serve. Because the Bible says, let's start at home. You have been given a spouse, and that is a relationship unlike any other you have. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has made you one. And so the Bible says, if you want to know if someone's a leader, look how they're leading at home first. Because if I can't start and serve there in that relationship that God has woven together in oneness, if I can't lay my life down in that relationship, I need to, I need to look through my entire life. I serve there and lay myself down because Christ laid himself down for me. 
And as, and the, as I sacrifice, I know that glory is promised. Listen, church, Christian, he's called us not to just serve a little more. It's not be nicer, be kinder. This is a completely opposite spirit as the world puts down and controls others to get glory. We understand that only God the Father gives glory. So we serve others and know that that's greatness. Glory is already guaranteed in the Father's time. I want to close with a story, an example of someone who <laughs> reached this, this kind of greatness. His, a man by the name of Raymond Edmund. Probably not a name that, that you would know. He was, uh, the, uh, he was a missionary and then eventually became the president of a college. It's a college up in Chicago. Uh, the name of the college is Wheaton College. It's a Christian college. And he served there from 1940 to 1965 as the president. And he was a great president, or he was a good president. I mean, he did a lot of different things. Like he, the student body grew by 50% over those years. He expanded the, the financial endowment they had. They built over a dozen different buildings. The campus expanded. I mean, he did a lot of things you want as a, a college president to do. But his real greatness is remembered for something else. He and his wife in the wee hours of the morning labored every day in prayer for their student body. They would go through the list and lift up these names, hundreds of names, by name, morning after morning after morning after morning. And people have looked back at that era and have now, so many years later, seen the extraordinary product of that faithful serving, the number of pastors, missionaries, evangelists, people that had given their entire life to serving the gospel in all different industries that came out from that era was astounding. Let me give you a few of their names. Billy Graham and Ruth Graham, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Josh McDowell, John Piper. Those are just the ones you may know of let alone the scores, maybe hundreds of missionaries you will never hear of that went to the farthest ends of the earth and gave their lives there. His greatness was how he served and prayed over each one of them. Why would he do something like that? Because he knew who the king was. In fact, let me, let me tell you about his last chapel speech he, uh, to the student body, he had, um, he had just transitioned from presidency to being the, the chancellor. And his last chapel speech was called In the Presence of the King. And as it was beginning, towards the beginning of the year, and the students filed in for chapel, and he said, hey, every time we gather for chapel, I want you to be reminded we're entering into the presence of not just a king, the king of kings. So just like David, when he was writing about entering into the presence of the King of Kings, walk in and be still and know that he is God. And he said these words during his chapel address and then took a step back from the podium and collapsed and died on the floor. The new president walked up, asked for a doctor, dismissed the student body, a few weeks later, they had his memorial service. Billy Graham gets up to speak, and he tells the student body and all those, the alumni and all those who had gathered, 
They said, here's what we, he said, here's what we've witnessed. A man preaching about how to enter into the presence of the king. And before he's done with his sermon, he himself had entered into the presence of the king. That's a man that knew who King Jesus was and was ready to stand before him one day in all of his glory. You and I will stand before King Jesus one day. And he has called us to follow after him and not to live a life of pursuing glory, but pursue a life of serving every day. Knowing that glory is not something to be achieved or gained, that is something only dispensed by Almighty God. So the question for us is, will we listen to the words of Jesus and to walk into this week, this afternoon, looking for how we can serve? Let me close this in prayer. Christian, how might the Lord Jesus be speaking to you today? Where is the Holy Spirit convicting you to no longer pursue glory, but to pursue greatness? And that that's done by serving. Where is he calling you to set aside your own expectations, your own things you think you have rights to and just simply look to how you can serve? Would you just ask the Holy Spirit to do the miracle of transformation in your heart? Some of you need to take a step and become part of the kingdom of heaven for the first time. Some of you need to give your life to King Jesus. Surrender to him. Find a new kind of life. Have all of your sins taken away, expunged on the cross by the work of Jesus. Let him take away all of your sins. Step into a new life of forgiveness. Let the Holy Spirit fill you and start transforming you into something that this world won't recognize something like the image of Christ. Would you surrender your life to him today? If you want to do that, you can do that with a simple prayer. Let me lead you in that prayer. Just silently right there, whether you're Cooper City, you're here, you're watching at home, just say this to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Just right now, silently tell him that, Jesus, I surrender to you. You saved me. I make you my king. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.